general nerdery. For as long as mankind has existed, we've always told stories. From sitting around the fire to the complicated Marvel Cinematic Universe or anything coming out today. But there was a very a brief period in human history from the end of the 19th to about the middle of the 20th century, where some of the greatest writers who have ever lived all wrote in to cheap, mass-produced short stories, exposing the world to ideas that have changed us on just about every level. And in that time, there were three authors that really defined a book where they could all tell their own weird tales. Nice. I like yeah, I, I've never tried to not be funny on. Let's say I think that was the, I think that was the most thinky we've ever done one of these intros. I don't think that's not how we roll here on General Nerdery. Actually, you rolled that way all the time. Anyways, as you may have noticed, while we ruined that, uh, welcome to General Nerdery. We're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler, and uh, we're your podcast about liking things. And you may have noticed. I really like the things that we are going to talk about today. I I do too. I do too. This is a this is a good one. We'll get into pulp and more specifically horror based pulp and sword and sorcery, which is my in in a little bit. But before that, what have you been ingesting? Ooh, yeah. This week, <laughs> this week I lost sleep. Uh, due to the fact that the new Dresden Files novel was dropped. It's the only thing you've talked about for seven days. I I started following, finally, even though I've been a fan for years now, the Dresden Files subreddit just because of it. And, like, basking in the glow of... The minds exploding. Minds exploding. It was huge. We have an entire another Dresden episode coming up, so I'll try not to say too much right now, but... Dickie will be joining us again. We're very excited. I'm super excited, but this might be my favorite one. Damn, son. That's what I'll say for now. That's a lot. That's that's asking a lot, because I'm pretty sure my favorite is... uh, Might be Summer Night, the one that we covered Mm. already. And it's getting... It's getting nutty with just the amount of craziness that's going on in Every chapter? I will find out in approximately one month. Like Alara levels almost. That's what I'll say for now. Hated the Codex Alara. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. This one reminded me a lot of my favorite Codex Alara book, so. I'm going to remain positive anyways. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, that and, like, I finally set down other games for a bit and, like, got back into The Witcher more this weekend again, so that's been fun. Yeah. Um, I don't have anything that fancy. I mean, I read a bunch of, for me, a bunch of H.P. Lovecraft and quite a bit of Robert E. Howard all prepping for this, which is uh, depressing. Just going to get that out there. That's very depressing. Uh, Cece and I bashed out really quickly Untitled Geese Game, which is the two-player mode on Untitled Goose Game that they released. It's hella fun. And it is now something that we can super do as a group, like anyone, but uh, I wish they had put in new tasks mm. because it's the exact same game, but with two geese. And in some cases, that makes it really, really easy. Gotcha. But still super fun because it's still Untitled Goose Game. Mm-hmm. And there's still plenty to do just because there's 
so much bullshit. But like we beat the main game in like two hours. Oh, okay, yeah. We've both like, beat it one player, so we were like, oh, yeah, this thing. Um, <laughs> this will be easy. In, in some cases, it was actually interesting because it was almost harder because you had to move because uh, you both have to fit on the same screen. It's not like oh, two-screener. Yeah, you're tethered. So, yeah, the, the tether definitely changed how you did things, in some cases making it so fucking simple, and in other cases, like, the timing stuff got really easy. But, like, if you had to move quickly, you had to make sure that you were communicating and both going. Okay. Okay. Tortured that poor child some more. <laughs> and then the only other thing I really did was I've been catching up on Welcome to Night Vale, because it is one of my favorite podcasts, and I got thinking about it again because... Well, honestly, because Yui mentioned it to me, but also because... Uh, Lovecraft and a lot of the kind of writing that we're going to talk about today was a major influence for it. Awesome. You know, I've still never gotten into it. Oh, I tried a couple episodes and I really liked what I listened to. I just, it's never been one that I've kept, found any need to keep current on in any amount. I don't, like, it's not one of my, like, as soon as it comes out episodes. It's one of my forget about it for a couple months and be like, oh my god, I've got, like, 15 episodes of Welcome to Night Vale to binge right now. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that with a couple other shows. I get that. Um, yeah, I guess that's what we've been ingesting. I do have a little bit of news here. Like, Dune's been delayed. Yeah. Duh. Along with Bond. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of fallout of Bond choosing to delay, if I remember, too. I, you know what? Whatever. Yeah. It's like uh, it's the times we're living in. Yeah, yep. uh, another movie theater is like we're gonna close down until. Oh, yeah, uh, Regal Cinemas are closing all of their U.S. locations. I can't remember for how long. Foreseeable future. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and it sucks because there's a lot of people who were making their money doing. You know, not the higher ups. Fuck them. But like, <laughs> showing my thoughts today. But a lot of people who are you know making ends meet working in the movie theater. This is rough for them. But at the same time, movie going to the movie theater right now is going to make all of this last so much longer. So I'm not... Okay, do it. Shut down. Well, and even... I'll agree with fuck the higher-ups, but even one of the things they said sort of makes sense to me. Because all of these movies are getting postponed because they don't want to be released when only they're only going to make fucking five million on what they would normally make like 50 million on mm -hmm. because so many, you know, yeah, some just aren't open this or that. And the other thing, one of the, uh, one of the higher ups at Regal was basically like, we're basically a, a grocery store without anything on the shelves right now. Yeah. There's no reason for them to be open right now. Yeah. It's like, there's kind of no point in it. it sucks, but I'm glad that we just squeaked in and got uh, Harley Quinn and the the Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Munch blah 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 Harley Quinn. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that was fun. I'm I'm glad we squeaked in and got that one right before kind of everything shut down because it was great. There's rumors that they might be going straight from whenever they can fully resume production on Witcher two season two right into season three. But along with that, they've been dropping more and more images. And I just know that you have things to say about the new armor. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up here. But yeah, I saw the new armor today and I was 
entirely unimpressed. It's not bad looking, but I mean, I'm an amateur leather crafter and it's not too wildly above what I could do. Like, I know people who could have made that armor better. Mm. And, I mean, that's cool. I know cool leathers. And it's, well, I'm sure, well-made. But it just, I was unimpressed. Like, as, as a leather crafter, being like, that's, it's got so many rivets on it. And they are entirely decrement, decorative. Which is, okay, fine, whatever. I mean, so is, like, the piece of fur that literally everyone wears around them in fantasy shows ever since Game of Thrones. Right. But it, it just felt really kind of... It didn't look like something he'd be able to move very comfortably in, and they're going to completely ignore that, I'm sure. I don't know. It kind of made me think of uh, first X-Men movie X-Uniforms. Oh, yeah. I see that. And now I don't like it. <laughs> Sorry to ruin that for you. Um, and it's... As I said, it's not bad. It's not making me be like, oh, Witcher 2 is going to, or Witcher Season 2 is going to suck. I'm sure it'll continue to be good, trashy fun. Uh, I will take a downgrade in Geralt's armor if it means they change the Nilfgaardian armor from Season 1. You haven't watched Season 1, have you? No. Have you seen this armor? Probably. This is, ooh, on the left. I don't like that. That's. I had a friend describe this who also does leather crafting of, and I, and seeing this, I fully understand what he means of, uh, someone fucked up, like his theories that someone fucked up, uh, water hardening leather <laughs> and someone went, yeah, let's just do that. They kind of look like walking testicles. Yes. I understand why they were saying wrapped in ball sack now. Like yeah. I am learning many things. Uh, that armor is. I'm going to be elitist about armor here, even though I am very much not an expert. I just make leather armor because I think it's neato. Uh, It looks really uncomfortable to wear. It looks really uncomfortable to move in. And the limitations to your movement would probably... uh, Kill you? Yeah. (laughs) Honestly. Like, again, Belagarth is not real life, but really it's in a lot of cases more about protecting the spots where you're most likely to take damage so you can still like and having lighter armor everywhere else so you can still move a shit ton you know maneuverability is going to save you because you will get hit eventually yeah the ability to like you know determine like move better can make that last longer yeah, like I said, if they make the Nilfgaardian armor better, I'll take Geralt's going down. Some. And again, it's not ter- it's better than the Nilfgaardian armor you just showed me. It's just uh, bland, yeah. uninspired kind of fantasy armor. And I've seen better. Uh, their Hollywood reporter is reporting that Jamie Foxx is back in talks to play Electro again. Except this time against Tom Holland. I didn't hate his Electro. He's not bad. It's the script for that movie. I really hated their version of Max Dillon himself. Mm. But Max Dillon is not a very inspired character anyway. So whatever. Turn him into a creepy stalker instead of a putz criminal. I will definitely say this. The problem with Amazing Spider-Man 2 was in not a single case the actor's. Right. Like, 
Emma Stone was a good Gwen Stacy. Uh, uh, who was that? Andrew Garfield was a lot of fun as Peter, I thought. Uh, there were moments where everything clicked, but the the script was a mess. Mm-hmm. You know, they had moderate success with the first one, because I'll still stand by the first Amazing Spider-Man. Like, it's not perfect, but it's... It's fine. It's an enjoyable it's little good. superhero yeah. adventure. Yeah. Uh, and they went, oh, oh, we need to go bigger and better and launch this, like, actual Marvel universe. Let's meddle. And then you get Avengers 2. Or, in this case, Amazing Spider-Man 2. And it fucking doesn't work. People are like, oh, it'll be a big multiverse thing. And they do really seem to be playing with the multiverse lately. I wouldn't be surprised to see Secret War being their next... Right. uh, Infinity Wars. Um, But I'm not really that interested in him being the same Electro. Just... It just feels weird. I'm not... I'm not against it because he wasn't the problem, but I don't know. Something about it feels well, and they just were hoping to use else. they were hoping to use Jamie Fox a lot because they wanted to do a, a Sinister Six movie, mm-hmm. and they you know Jamie Fox being in gave them like that that was a power move to get that movie actually made. So I've heard Sony talk about still wanting to do a Sinister Six movie for. A reason that I really don't understand. Maybe they still just want Jamie Foxx. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, if that's how they can keep Jamie Foxx, then more power to them. If I'm not going to be grumpy about J.K. Simmons being uh, J. Jonah Jameson again, then fuck it. I'll give Jamie Foxx his Electro back. Like, that's fine. Uh, I will, Something about that just feels more right to me, though, than this. Yes, because it's hard to... Im- I mean, he owned that character oh, so good my only thing is i hope in the spider-man sequels they let him have the wig again oh like yeah. let him have the hair mm. he, it looks weird with a bald j yeah yeah J-J-J. yeah i agree uh we have a miss marvel yes and i do not know her name and i felt better about that when i learned that she's been in like nothing before this yeah newcomer Amon Valani, who yeah, I have. She didn't have an IMDb when this was created. Like, so I'm going to assume that they did their homework and she can act, but she looks perfect for the role since that's all we have to, to base it on. She looks perfect for the role. Uh, she looks to be about the right age so they can get some real work out of it. Uh, and you know what? Disney's been pretty good on their casting, even like, again, like Amazing Spider Man 2, even when I find stuff that doesn't work. My problem is very rarely the actors they choose. And I think if it's anything like the uh, comics that created it by G. Willow Wilson, Miss Marvel's going to be a fucking delight. Yeah, should be great, I think. It's just, I don't know. This is another one of those things where it's like, yay, in- inclusivity. Cool, it's <laughs> happening. I have nothing to say about it beyond especially, that sentence. Especially this early in, in it all going on. Yeah. I mean, I am pretty trusting because Disney Plus is putting real work into making this stuff, but it's not uncommon for Marvel to announce they're making a thing and not have it get made. There was about 10 different versions of The Runaways before that show got made. Uh, And to end off the news for this week. Small news day. That's good. Small news day. Yeah. Uh, We must have just sent something in the air. 
because Netflix announced that they're going to be working on a new Conan the Barbarian series. You and I are very good at like timely content creation without meaning to at all. Uh, they signed, sealed a deal with Conan Properties International and move forward with the new Conan series. That's literally it, though. Like, there's no creative team yet. There's no official title. It's not sure if it's going to be a movie or a series, if it's going to be live action, animated, or if they're going to do things across the entire spectrum. We should mention this is another thing where this could easily fall apart still. Uh, I'm thinking it probably won't. I think we're going to get at least one season of Conan something. I'm desperately hoping it won't. I am just being honest about this while we're talking about it. Like, uh, this level of early announcement, it's not hard for them to be like, well, that didn't fucking work. Uh, But Conan, as we will discuss, is a very strong character. I would love, love to have a, like, you know, The Witcher, but Conan the Barbarian TV show. See, that I was about to say that I think they're being like, The Witcher is working. Can I'm a Conan? little surprised because Marvel has the Conan license for comics. Mm. And Netflix and Marvel have been having a kind of messy breakup the last couple of years. But that is the comic book license. That is not Marvel owns Conan the Barbarian. Do we happen to know... Does Marvel also have uh, the rest of Howard's characters? Like, who has Solomon Kane? It's a little unclear. I believe Marvel has Solomon Kane. That's weird sounding, but... Uh, I mean, they've released them before. <laughs> I've got some old Marvel Solomon oh, Kane yeah. stories. Howard Jacob, they're weirdly good. Because they did a time travel story recently, or like a, an evil through the ages crossover that had Dark Agnes, who's a, a Solomon Kane era character that mm. Howard made. Conan and various versions of Moon Knight, because, again... That's a character thing that you can put through time. And Moony. I desperately want Moon Knight and Conan to meet up now. I'm like, yep, let's do this. I am in. Oh, Conan would not like Moon Knight. Oh, probably not. Uh, but, like, respect in their own weird way. Um, I don't know if they own Cole. As I said, I think that I know they don't own Red Sonia because Red Sonia is not, tech- it, not technically a Howard creation. Mm-hmm. There was a similarly named Red Sonia, but like spelled differently. That was a Solomon Kane era character that Roy Thomas brought in to the Conan book as a Conan character and became her own thing. But I'm not sure where ownership lies with that one. Other than Dynamite has the publishing rights and has been doing just, I almost made a pun, but some just uh, real solid work. <laughs> Explosive work. So, I mean... What what everybody's hoping for is that they just do fucking King Conan. Get what, Arnie. Like Schwartz? No, 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 no. That's what like ninety percent of the fan base, other than you, is wanting right now. I'm sorry. You know what? It would be kind of fun, and I've become much more fond of Arnold Schwarzenegger in in his old age. If you're going to give it to someone who's done it before, give it to Jason Momoa. Because we're in an age where we let people redeem themselves when they were a good choice for a bad movie. Jason Momoa looked like he was having the time of his life on that, like, on the behind the scenes stuff, too. I they really just made like a him. shitty movie out of it. 
Well, well, you know what? We're going to be talking about Conan here in a second anyway. I'll, I'll save some of my thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, we're, we're just itching to get to this. Uh, but before that, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss Weird Tales, Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, and Clark Ashton Smith. So Tyler's sitting here with a little Cthulhu plushie in his lap uh, and looking just super proud of himself. Yay. <laughs> and a Necronomicon. And uh, some Conan the Barbarian. Um, we've been very excited because to do this episode. I mean, I say that a lot because it turns out this podcast is just hella fun to do. But we've been excited to do this episode because it's kind of an intro to several other episodes we want to do. Because we're like, oh, we'll do a Conan episode. Oh, we obviously need to do a Lovecraft episode. Uh, we need to branch out. Yeah, but it turned out that it was, uh, in some cases, easiest to talk about this kind of writing and weird tales in particular first, because it lets us kind of set up the world for those later episodes a little better than I think I could hope to otherwise. And we didn't intend this, but thinking about it, talking about three separate tales in a episode that's about a magazine that used to run a bunch of different tales from it's all these. super perfect right yeah. like <laughs> i mean so we can do that what should we start with weird tales itself? let's talk about with weird tales itself and this part will only take a moment um as we said weird tales was a pulp magazine when we say pulp magazine it's called that because of the uh cheap paper it made out of wood pulp and uh it was a style of magazine where they were releasing several stories within several short stories in uh, one magazine coming out, I think, monthly for the most part. I think so, too. Uh, the first they had uh, they had different financial troubles at times, so it wouldn't be sometimes uh, monthly, sometimes quarterly. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Um, when we talk about pulp stories, we should really talk about the fact that everyone wrote for pulp isaac asimov ray bradbury all their stories were pretty much originally released in pulp uh, uh frank herbert who did dune tennessee williams playwright that did streetcar named desires first um bought, uh his first sale of his writing was to weird tales mark twain even wrote in the pulp novels later in life uh the shadow we had pulp novels. Flash Gordon had pulp novels. Uh, Doc Savage, the Man of Bronze. Like, the comic book industry exists because of pulp novels. The first Superman story that is very different than the Superman came out of the comics came out in a pulp novel. And now, the pulp technically refers to the way, it, the medium on which it was mm -hmm. presented. Yeah, the, the cheap, shitty paper. But that, there was only a certain, like... There was only certain types of writing that were associated with that paper because everyone else wanted to seem higher class. Yes, uh, which is funny because short stories used to be like kind of the classy standard and then they became the unclassy standard and then they kind of just died after. Like, I mean, short stories still exist, but like uh, bef this is before novels really took hold. This is kind of the last gasp of short stories is like the dominant form of fiction telling. Mm -hmm. But pulp generally meant... Science fiction, crime, horror, action. Some combination of those four. Yeah. Weird fiction. 
which is its own little subgenre that's almost only exists in pulp from that time mm-hmm. period or things directly influenced from pulp from that time period. I mean, fucking Cthulhu. What is that? Cthulhu country? Oh, Lovecraft country. Lovecraft country. Thank you. Uh, that's coming out now. That is like one of the highest ranked shows on TV and it is directly all from. Yeah. References. Yeah. All of this for the most (laughs) part. Yeah. I was going to say, obviously Lovecraft with that being straight in the title, but it truly references all sorts of shit from this time period. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs is who I was forgetting to talk about. Mm. The writer of Tarzan and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Yeah. Directly referenced in the first episode of Lovecraft Country. Right. Like I always thought that Tarzan was like, classier when i was younger because it was old no and later found out no it was like trash the cheap shit trash novels but they were fun and probably horrifically racist i've never actually read tarzan i've read a little bit i i dig the character tarzan quite a bit i have actually. a tarzan red sonia crossover comic book and like Ooh. nothing about that sentence should work and even in the comic they're confused about what's happening but like it's really good Strangely, the Disney movie really strangely sold me on the concept of Tarzan. I can see it. Because he was a super badass, just like grinding all over trees. Just like the most insane oh, it was so Tony nice. Hawk combos. Yeah. <laughs> but as to what we're actually talking about, Weird Tales was first published in 1922. And it ran for ever. I think uh, oh it uh, the original run I believe ended in 1940 but it's come back and gone and come back and gone. Yep, the original run sorry went from not from 1940 uh, but to 1954. It came back in the 1970s and 80s and uh, up to 2002. 2008. Man, I did not Scroll down far enough for 2014. this. 2014. 2014. But the original run, the one the run that really was what made all of this, 1922, 1923 to about 1954. Yeah. Which is the golden age to the demise of the pulp novel. Uh, we were talking a little bit before uh, off mic on like where pulp almost begins and ends because there is crossover in the type of fiction being written in pulp with the mediums that came directly prior and directly after. Well, the Penny Dreadful and the Dime Novel, which the Dime Novel tended to not be short stories, but like actual little crappy novels for a dime. But it was Um, generally the same style of fiction. Um, And then I was bringing up you, this also gives rise to giallos in Italy uh, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, they would reprint mystery and supernatural gothic horror stories in these little fiction pamphlets that were all yellow. Giallo is yellow in Italian, which gave rise to an entire genre of slightly horror-tinged mystery detective shit. Weird crossover shit. The comic books later like took that ability to mix genres and took it. A- Kind of farther. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's easy to be like a novel. It is this length, yada, 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 short story. But like what qualifies as a pulp? There's a lot of arguments either way. And then radio serials and pulp stuff were very, very like, I mean, use the same characters in a lot of cases. The Shadow, who's a very famous pulp hero, started as a narrator for a radio. 
So the definition of pulp, like the era I gave, is kind of the accepted thing, but understand that there's stuff coming out today that would qualify as pulp. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or neo-pulp of some kind. Mm, yeah. Uh, and honestly, I mean, looking even through film genres, like 70s uh, Grindhouse movies are a direct descendant of pulp. Grindhouse, uh, black exploitation to an extent. Yeah, black exploitation to an um, extent. We'll mention here briefly, pulp, we're talking up how great pulp is. Should admit that a lot of pulp was absolute garbage. When the writing was good... It stands the test of time. It stands the test of time. It has no competition in a lot of ways. When the writing was bad, it was unreadable. And often in both cases, it was racist. Yeah, that's true. We will be talking about this. I mean, it's H.P. Lovecraft. I'm going to fucking talk about it. But but we also have an entire episode called Your Fave is Problematic. So we're not going to overfocus on it. But I, I can't talk about pulp without... Acknowledging... Yes. The shittier parts of it. Which was, they paid garbage that was kind of racist. Not as racist as several things in the era, but it was, you know, trash fiction. So right. when things went wrong, it went really wrong. Uh, now, we both kind of know who each other's favorites coming into this are. But is, like for you, is Robert E. Howard also your entryway into Pulp Fiction? You know, thinking of it like as actively like, I'm going to try out Pulp, probably. Um... I was introduced to a lot of aspects of pulp very early on without necessarily recognizing it because I've always been big into superheroes. Mm -hmm. uh, with getting big into superheroes, I was introduced to the Green Hornet, which didn't have a pulp novel himself. He was a little late for that, but did have a radio serial, which, as I said, was super closely connected to pulp. Uh, Green Hornet kind of started taking off when pulp was dying, starting to die. Uh, superheroes was a big thing. I read Foundation in middle school, which was also released in Pulp. Uh, Robert E. Howard was definitely my intro to weird tales. Okay. To the kind of weird fiction, because it's sword and sorcery, but it's also horror, and it's also weird fiction. And Right, now, weird fiction, I would... I'm, we're probably going to say it another few times over the course of this podcast. Weird fiction is a subgenre that all these guys wrote in a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's best described as dark horror tinged fantasy that doesn't use standard horror cliche monsters unless they've been warped in some way. It's unlikely to use a zombie or a vampire. It's horror of the tentacle. Mm-hmm. It's something beyond. It's something other. Also that, horror of the mind. Existential yeah. dread is like the running theme in weird fiction. Yeah, especially once it's beyond simply weird horror or beyond weird fiction and goes into cosmic horror, which yeah. is more like the Lovecraft side being the godfather of cosmic horror. Uh, with that in mind, who do we want to start with? Do we want to start with Lovecraft? Uh, we can start anywhere. I was. We might want to start with smith because he's the one that we know the least okay. about we're gonna be straightforward with you here we're gonna do smith a little dirty in this episode because neither of us had ever read any of his stuff before this i realize he's an amazing amazing artist who went beyond even just these 
doing this sort of thing. He was a sculptor as well. Like he did a lot of cool art and I'm, this is the beginning of my Smith journey in a lot of ways. But you know, uh, as we've talked about, H.P. Lovecraft is one of your favorite writers and Robert E. Howard is one of my favorite writers. So both of us came in and we were like, okay, we're going to like give you a good intro. That's that writer at the top of their game. And we don't, especially since Smith doesn't have the like staying power fan base that the other two have developed. We didn't have that like, oh, here's where you start. We just went, oh, you heard this one was pretty good. Yeah. So one that I heard was pretty good and decided it might be a good one to choose was Return of the, to talk about is Return of the Sorcerer because it directly references the Cthulhu mythos. Mm -hmm. So to tie us over to Lovecraft. And then what was the other one that, because uh, we read one other one too. Uh, the Abominations of Yondo. Which was cool. That one really reminded me of some of the early Lovecraft stuff. That one reminded me more of Howard. But we'll, let's talk yeah. about who Clark Ashton Smith was first, and then we will talk a little bit about the stories. I don't have much to say about either, so we might be able to cover both. Mm -hmm. uh, Clark Ashton Smith was born on January 13th, 1893, and he lasted until August 14th, 1961, meaning he outlived the other two significantly. Yeah. Uh, we should say these three, beyond just being the like main circle of weird tales, were all prolific letter writers to each other. They were they were internet buddies years before the internet existed. And what's interesting is they never met in person. Right. Wildly changed fiction and their lives, like literally changed the world of fiction. And they only one person ever met all three artists. Oh, shit. Really? I don't know who it is. I don't remember the name, but only one person ever met all three of them in person. Uh, but they changed the course of each other's lives in a lot of ways. I wonder Smith if... again less, but. Yeah. Although I have a feeling that those two would disagree. I think they both held Smith in very high regard. <laughs> yeah, no, they uh, and Smith's a great writer. He didn't stick as strongly. Uh, Smith was born. In, as we said, uh, 1893, he lived most of his life in Long Valley, California, in a tiny wooden shack, which he did not like, but lived in there and looked after his parents until they died. And then he married pretty late in life. Um, what's interesting about him is it's kind of through a chance of fate that he's not way more high class and famous than he is. Because before the Great Depression hit, he was writing poetry predominantly. He was like his first book of poetry was being compared to Keats and Byron, like, you mm. know, the, some mm -hmm. of the greatest poets of their age. But then his parents got sick and the American economy was in the shitter. So he stopped for a while. And when he came back, he was writing short fiction and went from like, you know, he's a poet. He's going to be high class to writing shitty, wonderful pulp dime novels. Mm -hmm. I do. <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up his poetry because I do think the very first time I heard of Clark Ashton Smith was, I think, probably Neil Gaiman mentioning something about his he poetry. He seems exactly like the person that Neil Gaiman would be into. Um, and all three of them did write poetry. They all mm -hmm. really enjoyed poetry. But for him, poetry was his calling later on in life because he writes through most of the pulp era, then stops writing and spends later part of his life doing uh, 
sculpture primarily. And his wife's like, you should do some fiction. And he's like, no, I don't want to. Uh, fiction was always kind of his, like, well, I want to write, so I guess if I have to, this one will work. That might be meaner than it deserves. <laughs> like, I, I I think he enjoyed writing, but, like, it right. was... It, uh, sh writing short fiction wasn't his calling in the same way it was the other two. And I sometimes wonder if that's where some of the staying power comes mm. from. Like, those two pour their messed up, fucked up heart and souls onto the page. And this dude, oh fuck, what's the quote? Uh, no one else has ever so lovingly described a corpse. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Elsprog <laughs> uh, uh, DeCamp said that, who is kind of why we know who Lovecraft and Howard are, too, because he was a big early proponent of them after their death, being like, no, no, we need to pay attention to these guys. Yeah. Uh, Sprague de Camp and August Derleth. That's the other one. Are the two big reasons why we know any of these three. Which is funny because DeComp re-edited and butchered most of these stories. Like, his versions were supposed to be awful. Oh, but Dur Durleth might have been done something even worse. We'll get into that here in a second when we start yes, talking sorry, about Yes, sorry, save Lovecraft. that. We are trying to talk about Clark Ashton Smith, a man that I know nothing about. That's the um, problem. We don't know much of <laughs> We already admitted Clark Ashton Smith is our weak point. So... All right, so let's talk about the stories. Let's do fucking... Desert one that I forgot the name of already again. Abomination of the Yondo. Abomination of Yondo. Uh, I get that? Yeah. The Abominations of Yondo. Which is the the first story that I've read. I've listened to this one a couple of times. It is about a man that has been banished from his civilization into a terrifying desert. He wanders around for a little while and then runs back. And it's no, way better than that makes it sound, I should say. No, but that's literally it. He <laughs> wanders around in this hellscape desert until he sees enough things that terrify him to the point where he's willing to run back into the arms of those that banished him. And tortured him. Yeah. Put him on the rack. So I don't know if this is part of the cycle. It's confusing. Howard wrote the Hyperborean cycle and Ashton Smith wrote the Hyborian cycle. <laughs> like the names are almost identical and it was their own little fantasy worlds. I don't know if Yondo is considered part of that or a precursor to that. Oh yeah. I'm not sure either. It was good. I find with Smith's writing that my attention wanders really easily. Like I'll just, cause I was listening to the audiobooks, and there is a kind of like, I don't know if soothing is the right word because existential horror is happening the whole time, but there, there is a kind of like, calm cadence to his the way that he writes that let my mind kind of wander off as I kind of just like got the emotion of the story as opposed to what actually happened in the story which tends not to be overly exciting in either one of these right uh, do you have anything about well, I was, abominations you were saying that it reminded you some of Howard and I'm just sort of curious because you've read more Howard than me I have read a little bit more Howard than simply what we're I think talk the biggest today, thing but. is the fact that it feels I mean it it fits very easily into a sword and sorcery genre mm. I mean I'm not sure but like they put him on the rack and gave him like as they throw this man out into the desert I don't think we ever even learned the guy's name no just that he had been committed heresy and the priests chucked him and it it felt very sword and sorcery it felt kind of 
Have you ever seen the Dark Sun campaign setting for D&D? I have. It's the, like, Psyker post-apocalypse one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yondo reminded me of the Dark Sun campaign setting. Okay. Probably the, like, desert full of evil going on there. See, his his dis- the way he described the desert of evil, because that's a, as good a term of any as any, reminded me a lot of some of the way Lovecraft would describe some of the nightmarish hellscapes uh, mm-hmm. people would find their way onto in various ways. Like I said early Lovecraft because it kind of reminded me of uh, in his short story Dagon. That's one of the ones I read. Like when he's up on the mass of just like decaying fish and all that shit, like that plateau in the middle of the ocean. Oh yeah, super gross. Yeah. We'll get to that. Um... I can see it. I just, I think because my brain put it so firmly into like sword and sorcery fantasy, mm. when I tend to think of Lovecraft, I think more early 20th century. Right. Especially because he was a weird Anglophile. Yeah. No, fucking weird. Uh, he, but you're right. A lot of the descriptor, not much detail, just enough to give you kind of the emotion, what's going on. Howard, on the other hand, can sometimes get, too descriptive you you actually see what howard's describing yes Howard. the other two you have to fill in some more of the details yourself god we're talking about howard and lovecraft again instead of but uh i i give up it is what it is howard wanted to paint you a word picture lovecraft wants to paint you a feeling although both of them are insanely good at existential dread again um all right what about return of the sorcerer Return of the Sorcerer was weird for me, just because of how much Lovecraft I have read, and the Necronomicon is directly referenced and is a huge part of the plot, and Clark Ashton Smith uses it in a lot more just like of a, uh, almost set in like a Judeo-Christian mythology than is like ever referenced in the Lovecraft works. So... Return of the Sorcerer is important because it is the first book in the Cthulhu mythos not written by H.P. Lovecraft himself. Uh, Lovecraft encouraged them to write references to each other. Uh, Rylep and Dagon are meant... Is that correct? Rylep... Are a bunch of consonants and some Ys. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) Uh, is mentioned in Worms of the Earth directly. Dagon comes up several times. Dagon was probably my favorite part out of all of this. He, in this one, the uh, Necronomicon is a major part of the story. I listened to this story right before I came over here. I can only vaguely tell you what went on because, again, I just, like, I got off work, sat down, and, like, kind of the, the, the tenor and the cadence of his writing didn't put me to sleep, but just let my mind wander as I kind of like let the feeling of the words wash over me. Man is hired to uh, translate the Necronomicon madness and murder ensues. Yeah, it's um, yeah, dude's hired to translate. Uh, the guy had only had the Latin translation before, which he suspected left out parts, but he didn't know enough Arabic to be able to confirm that. Because 
the Necronomicon is famously written by Abdul Al-Hazred. The Mad Arab. With one of the stories that I read was, or listened to, of H.P. Lovecraft was the history of the Necronomicon. Mm. This one was kind of fun because it did fit very much into that. It's used in the right way, but it's mm-hmm. really weird how, like I said, Judeo-Christian it's made rather than all the references that would normally be to, like, Yogg-Sothoth and um, some of the other. yeah. Old yeah, I mean, it's still definitely Clark Ashton Smith writing this as opposed to Lovecraft. Uh, the, Necron- the history of the Necronomicon is really a great little piece of world building that Lovecraft did. I found I wanted a lot more of that. Mm. Uh, other than its historical importance, I don't have much to say about Return of the Sorcerer. Again, it was good. It, it was, was like it was fine. Honestly, like we're not being super like excited talking about either of these stories, but they truly have me excited to seek out more Clark Ashton Smith in a lot of ways. He's a more straightforward Lovecraft to me. Yes, I can see that. And I can see the appeal. I'm going to listen a lot to a lot more. I have a huge book of short stories of his on audible that I picked up, which is part of what inspired this. Um, And if you are already a huge Clark Ashton Smith fan and you find that description, Uh, (laughs) like I don't mean it to be being a huge Lovecraft fan. I mean that as like a, like a fucking big plus to him. Lovecraft can be a little obtuse sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to reading, especially the Hyborian Hyperborn, whichever one it is. I can never remember. Uh, stuff as a fan of sword and sorcery. I think that like I, I saw some real greatness in the little bit that I got there, mm-hmm. but I just don't have too much to say about him because he's still so new. So I guess with that in mind, who do we want to go to next? We want to go. Well, we might as well. That connects to Lovecraft. All right. So let's go with Lovecraft next. So let's go to Lovecraft. Uh, the story, uh, just to get this out there, the short story that we chose for this was Rats in the Walls. We will talk about that, too. Uh, and I also listened to Dagon and the History of the Necronomicon. Okay. H.P. Lovecraft is the man with the pinchiest face I have ever seen in my life. Even when he... I one Even of the when pic- he's smiling. Well, not even when he's smiling and even when he got kind of chubby. Because he, he got kind of chunky when he moved to New York. He looked like he just, like... Ate a warhead. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty accurate at all times. Uh, sorry, I just watched a Brian David Gilbert video before I came over here about uh, living in the '90s and warheads came up. So, but yeah, so tasty. H.P. Lovecraft, born Howard Phillips Lovecraft in August 20 of 1890 in Providence, Rhode Island. He died at the age of 46 on March 15, 1937, once again in Providence, Rhode Island. Probably not in the same house, but in one of the houses he grew up in, I think. Ooh, I can't remember that for sure. Possibly not just because of how poor he was by the end. Mm, that's true. So Lovecraft might be one of the bigger influences on recent pop culture. Of the in- three we're talking about, he's easily the biggest influence because when it is when the world feels like it's falling apart. Lovecraft speaks to you on a really fundamental level. Uh, especially, so I was the one that picked Rats in the Walls. Even though when we first talked about this episode, I specifically told you, I'm like, let's not talk about Rats in the Walls because that's the one with the unfortunate cat. Which we'll talk about in a minute. 
<laughs> and then I event I had to narrow it down. And after our last episode, I sat there trying to figure it out for almost two hours. I completely reread Color Out of Space just to see if I wanted that to be the intro. Which is the one I was betting we were going to do. And the only reason I didn't go with that was because it didn't originally appear in Weird Tales. I had to find some way to narrow it Which down. is funny because neither of the Clark Ashton Smith stories we chose originated in Weird Tales. But that's because we suck at Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah, we, we covered that. Anyways, um, I keep but interrupting you. As far as timeline of Lovecraft's works go... This, in a lot of ways, is one of the first stories of his that matters. He did an entire cycle known as the Dream Cycle before this, for the most part. I do think a couple remnants of the Dream Cycle come Mm -hmm. in after this. But that's more... That didn't hit big. None of those were first published in Weird Tales, except for maybe one of them. And... They are more looked back upon with like, oh, these are really neat ideas. What blows me away about Lovecraft is that he never at any point in his life was able to live a financially stable life off of his writing. Right. Never, never in his life. But he's easily like the best recognized and one of the highest thought authors of the 20th century now. Mm -hmm. But Rats in the Walls comes... I think he had had one or two stories pa- published in Weird Tales before this of the five that they bought straight off the first time that he sent some in. But this is like four years before Call of the Cthulhu. It's like, uh, like I said, Color Out of Space wasn't Weird Tales, but it's three years before that. This is the first one where you can really be like, this is very much Lovecraft's writing style rather than him trying to imitate Lord Dunsany or Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And even Rats in the Walls has some Poe elements. Everything he writes has a bit of Poe in him. Um, All right. Before we dive into Rats in the Walls, because I really do want to talk about that on on the merits of Rats in the Walls. Let's. Oh, and the uh, one other thing was I also didn't want to make you read his l- possible longest work, which is po- actually probably the better intro, which is at the Mountains of Madness. Oh, okay. Let's but let's get out of the way the 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 quick discussion on how H.P. Lovecraft was just an absolute piece of shit. We're going to talk a bit about Howard's too, so I'm I'm trying to be fair here. But uh, as we have discussed ad nauseum on the show, he was extremely racist. Uh, what's interesting, I don't know if interesting is the right word, is he would hold these really terrible opinions, befriend someone of, you know, Jewish heritage or, I mean, his wife, uh, mm-hmm. or a black man or whatever, and think glowingly of the person and be like, oh, like to openly talk to other people of like, you know, I better not share my opinions around him because he'd be really offended and I would hate that. Like, uh, there, there's something bizarre about that to me, but it is what it is. It's and then all- also with some of his other opinions later in life, like how weird it is he stuck to being such a racist because like he criticized the New Deal for not being leftist enough. He was a weird guy. He was also pretty homophobic, which is interesting because. He might have been gay, like, and that also wasn't terribly uncommon with the open, like, the loudly homophobic in the 1940s where you really couldn't come out, like, overcompensating. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make it okay, but it is what it is. 
there is a story that I read of one of the guys that I think inherited Lovecraft's papers, like the, his actual writing, not necessarily like the IPs or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, who had been a writing fan of Lovecraft because Lovecraft was prolific letter writer. And he was writing back and forth to his fan and this fan's like, hey, why don't you come stay at my house for the summer? Because where you live sucks in the summer. And it's kind of nice here. And Lovecraft showed up. And when he got off the bus, he found out that this guy was like 16 years old. See, I'm not sure if this has ha- this happened because he really didn't like moving any place. I read an article about this, so I could be wrong, but... I'm just wondering if maybe it was someone else and not Lovecraft. Because he... Most of the time he turned down jobs was because he had no interest in moving. No, he really did not care And for he it. was also extremely socially anxious. Which is part of the reason why he barely got paid for his work, because he, in some cases, declined even turning in work because of his fear of rejection. And also because the person that I believe inherited most of his work was August Derleth, and he wouldn't have been a 16-year-old kid at the time, I don't think. The complicated friendship of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert Barlow, one of his biggest fans from the New York. Interesting. I'm going to have to look into that. Yeah, more. we'll talk about it later, but that's, I'll send you the link. Uh, we, won't, we don't need to go into it further. The, the only other reason is because it struck me when I was reading about his wife, that his wife made sure to take the time to be like, he was a perfectly acceptable lover, but I had to initiate. And I'm like, well, that kind of sounds like it backs up some of the he might have been gay theory. It doesn't matter. I just... I am interested in Lovecraft, even at the same time as annoyed at Lovecraft as a person as I am, as we've talked about. But I guess let's talk about Rats in the Walls. And then I want to do a little bit about Dagan, but mostly Rats in the Walls. Basics of this story, man rebuilds his ancestral home in England, finds spooky things in the cellar, goes insane, eats a dude. This is my introduction to Lovecraft. I mean, technically so, it's mine. I was surprised how much I liked this book. Or I say book, it's a short, it's like Mm -hmm. 15 pages long. It's not long. Uh, This one's also nice because the taint in the blood isn't as racist as it is in most of his other stories. Yes. Um, Get out of the way, this is the book with... uh, the cat being named Racial Slur Man. Yep. Uh, and I, I will say it's the thing that made me most angry on this because I'd get really into the story. I'd really, and then like the cat would go by and I just like, it just pulled me out every time. Drove me up a wall. Um, yeah, that's the thing that, it's weird because otherwise this is actually one of his tamer stories. Tamer stories as far as all that goes. It's more just about the really good buildup of the guy breaking down upon finding out the fullness of his lineage and just how horrific it is. But And how much more I wanted to know. Like, I wanted details, which Lovecraft is not known for giving, but I wanted them. The legend is that, you know, this castle that he's renovating, like, there have been buildings on it since Roman times in England that were evil, bad. Uh, but that he, his family that kept records of like what had happened there, uh, all of that information was lost in the civil war during, 
I'm assuming Sherman's march to the uh, sea because everything yeah, it sounded burnt. like something like that. Like, God, I sat in the perfectly wrong way in this chair. I'm going to make so many like chair moving noises <laughs> for you to edit out. Um, it was really like annoyingly good for me. Again, it's kind of hard to talk about because it's a very more about how it makes you feel. Like the guy makes the castle and he keeps hearing noises and stuff. And his buddy, who I kept it, I was certain that his buddy, the captain, the kind of heavy set Captain Norris, I think. Oh, yeah. Captain Norris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was certain that that guy was going to end up being like a cultist who was tricking him into rebuilding this place. But nope. Nope. He was just an unfortunate victim. He just was He's... trying to help and had things go shitty for him. Yeah. The, the the rats in the walls themselves and the continued hearing of the mm-hmm. rats is the Poe feature that very much sticks out. Yeah, it's very Telltale Heart. Yeah. Uh, uh, there There's... It's kind of similar to another Poe story, too, but I'm blanking on which one. I've read a lot of Poe as well, but... The only Poe I've really read much of is Ducamp. Like, mm. some of his uh, mystery stories. Mm. But when... They end up like going deep beneath the levels of the of the uh, castle and finding ancient. Oh, it just gets creepier and creepier. But that's the stuff I wanted to know more about. And what was interesting is I could like I could imagine it fitting perfectly into Howard's Hyperborean age, mm. like tracing back that far and like the, the the cult that must have existed there even though we don't learn a damn thing about them because lovecraft pulls the classic like uh indescribable horror yeah it's well it's he references a couple cults uh to the great mother the the magna mater mm-hmm. and uh the cult of cybele but I don't know. There's some there's some theories as to what else it could be referencing in there too, because he does make reference to like Narlithotep. Uh, it would fit in really well with the Bran MacMorn stories from Robert Howard as well, which is kind of Roman era Europe. Yeah, I don't know. I get I just something about it as that de- that descent into madness as like he keeps finding things that are more fucked up and more fucked up. You can, and you realize that like, he's like, he's having to come to grips with the fact that most of his family throughout centuries have been part of a cannibal cult that bred humanish creatures, creatures, uh, to feed upon. Uh, yeah, it felt very, as I said, Bran Macborn, Howard, uh, that that part of the cold, at least. What was interesting is the full descent into insanity is very abrupt, but it's very subtle. Mm-hmm. Like, you you know he's slowly losing his mind, but, like, out just kind of out of nowhere, like, it just goes from, like, man, he's having a rough time to, like, he's just fucking lost it. But it doesn't feel forced for being as abrupt as it is. No, and there is some tiny things before the the super mm-hmm. drop off the and deep end. And that's why they were able to be as abrupt as they were, I think. It, it, was, it was very subtly done. Like the him readopting the old school yeah. Delapore. That was neat. Um, it was one of those. And I realized that, you know, I am reading this when Howard himself has become a trope, being like, dude. How does any of this sound like a good idea? Like, 
oh, uh, I'm all sad after my son died, so I'm going to move to Britain to rebuild the uh, haunted ruins of my family's like estate that was burned down 500 years ago. And I... <laughs> The, the reason I also like to point to this is one of the, the good early examples before you get to the Cthulhu mythos proper of mm -hmm. this sounding like Lovecraft is because the thing that we're kind of not touching on is like you keep mentioning that you want to know more. There's not a, there's not that much detail. There's in par entire paragraphs of insane detail of all the corpses, but it's leaving out just enough that you don't know what lives beyond. Yeah. You never get the whole picture. So even when he is describing things, you feel like there's... Because he has very, like, minute detail of some things, but he leaves off just, just enough. enough around the edges. And that permeates through the rest of his work, because a lot of the horror to come is what you don't know that's still being ravaged upon your mind. Yeah. Which has kind of become the staple for what's considered good horror in a lot of ways, of, like giving you just enough and you know when you've crossed that line and suddenly you know the thing isn't that scary anymore because you've seen it um i want to talk about dagan really quickly oh yeah that's mostly right. because he seems to be the place that i have seen the most references to one he's named after an ancient mesopotamian god mm -hmm. and i love me some ancient mesopotamia but my favorite part of this is realizing how much Dagon, the story itself, influenced one of my favorite Discworld novels and one of my favorite Discworld jokes. Oh, no shit. Because the book Jingo, which is two City Watch books ahead of where you are, is about an island that reappears in the middle of the ocean out of nowhere. And there's a bunch of, like, octopus inhuman architecture, like right. tentacle inhuman architecture on it. Uh, but it's like a plot device for everything else that goes on when that island appears. And one of the running jokes, and it's where I first recognized the name Dagon, is um, in several books they go, everyone knows what happened to Mr. Hong on Dagon Street. And it's revealed that he tried to open up an all-night fish restaurant on the uh, abandoned site of the Temple of the Fish God. <laughs> on Dagon Street and disappeared. And anytime everyone's like, what happened to him? And they're like, uh, and change the subject. <laughs> like, and they don't tell you. So, and like, even the patricians like, oh man, everyone knows what happened to Mr. Hong. It's been a while since I've read Dagon. So it's not as, I don't remember it as clearly in my mind. I do remember reading it the first time it was weird to me because i had already read shadow over innsmouth like i don't know which takes some of the times or well the worship of dagon is brought back up in shadow over innsmouth but it's truly not clear whether they mean the same deity especially because the stories were written like 11 or 12 years apart because mm -hmm. dagon's pretty early for lovecraft that's like 1917 yeah and he wrote until Somewhere in the 30s. Right, yeah, 1917, he would have been, like, 27. Um, Pretty young. Um, I liked Dagon, just something about the writing style. And again, I, like, I had these connections. Anytime I went, oh, I recognize that, that was probably my favorite part of reading Howard. Dagon is the suicide note of an unnamed man 
who had was serving in the Navy in World War One, escaped from being caught, uh, but gets lost in the ocean and uh, finds himself on a island that appeared from nowhere. That's full of fish corpses, lots of fish corpses. He travels to the top of an island, sees a thing, goes mad, runs off, gets addicted to opium. Yeah, this all tracks really well for Lovecraft. Yeah, uh, and then is dying in the hospital and run, has run out of opium, and he's like, I'm going to die. And the last line is like, I hear something coming down the hall and talking about how he can hear the tentacles slithering, and then it ends. And you're like, well, Dagon fucking found that guy and was not thrilled about being found. Mm-hmm. Um, I just liked it. Like again, I don't have too much to add beyond. It is, you it it is you can tell it's early writing of a guy, but it left me wanting more. Which rats in the walls didn't in the same way. Dagon, a lot of the things sort of brought up in Dagon are are reused and made of better use in both Call of the Cthulhu and Shadow of Rin's myth. Yeah, it made me be like, oh, okay, this is why people like the Cthulhu mythos. I would really heavily, like like I said, I Rats in the Walls is the easiest short story to really get in on this is the style of H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I would say that if you want a better story that's a more broad understanding of what the mythos is, At the Mountains of Madness is where to go. Shadow over Innsmouth is maybe the best of the mythos stories, mm-hmm. even though it's only kind of related because of Father Dagon and the Satoric Order of Dagon, but it still is technically in there. And then, like, Call the Cthulhu is great. Like, people love Cthulhu. Yeah, Cthulhu. Like, people love Cthulhu, but it's kind of an anthology even of itself. It's like three shorter tales all put into one. But the last one is very reminiscent of Dagon. Sweet. Um, Before we move on, Howard died pretty young. I think he was about 45 or so when he died, I think I said. Not Howard, sorry. Lovecraft. Oh, uh, 46. 46. Uh, Cancer. Uh, And he died not long after Howard died. And it's thought that, like, that was... I mean, obviously, Howard dying didn't give him cancer. But, like, it, it... they talk about it like visibly affecting his health when he got the news. He was always prone to night terrors and depression. And uh, we just want to like really put how close these two were for never having met. Also like, man, I have a hard time not feeling like he was kind of a shitty person with his views, but I also feel kind of bad for the guy. If I'm going to be completely honest, because he did, he had to deal with a lot of shit in his life, too. Yeah. Uh, both of his parents died, eventually died in asylum, uh, in, dri- driven insane from late-stage sy- syphilis. His mom had doted on him, too, like, mm-hmm. too much. And his dad had raised him telling him terrifying tales and then went mad. Uh, and was also the one that instilled being a crazy Anglophile in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and f- his father would even, like, speak in a British accent. It's yeah. fucking weird. He it suffered from night terrors from being a small child on. Um, I'm not going to say this makes him any better, but he kind of shifted from racist to classist later on mm-hmm. in life where it was, it became, it's not so much that I hate everyone else, but just 
obviously the rich white European is the best, which ugh, I don't even like saying that sentence, but uh, I'm not saying it makes it better, but it is interesting. Yeah, I just, I wouldn't have wanted to be him, basically, No, is the point I'm getting at. Like, he led... I feel like there's a reason he was such a weird, conflicted guy. And I can't imagine living with that kind of feeling in myself, I guess. He led a kind of sad, terrifying life. And I think that, especially because he was raised with the idea of how good, like, him and his people were... That if everything is going so badly for him, then obviously everyone else, it must be even more terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that shaped a lot of his views. And that's not good, but it is sad. Yeah. And just some of the accounts of like, he was definitely, like, he definitely suffered from depression. Probably some form of social anxiety. Oh, hardcore social anxiety. Uh, and from what I've read of him, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if he was somewhere on the autism scale. Yeah. But I'm not, I mean, I don't. No, just. Not I'm, qualified to say that, but it like. I don't know. It's one of those things like. To me, I, I just, something about that. I'm just like, fuck. Because that's the, that's the one other thing that shows through in his writing. Because like a lot of the. A lot of the terror of being insignificant and a lot of the creatures themselves are straight from his night terrors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, I think, the horror of not fitting in Mm -hmm. or like not having control might be more accurate. The not fitting in one, thanks for saying that, The Outsider is probably his best work, hands down. And it's the one that I didn't say because it doesn't read like hardly almost anything else he's ever written. Interesting. It's a uh, first person narrative, a uh, very introspective, uh, great little tack on the end. Maybe the best thing he's ever written. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so let's, so that's the thing with choosing the rats in the walls. That's a built in segue <laughs> to our last author. It was a reprint uh, Rats in the Walls was originally printed in one of the 1924 issues of mm-hmm. Weird Tales. It was reprinted in a 1930 issue uh, of Weird Tales. And that's what got a young Robert E. Howard to write into the magazine with his thoughts on some of the uh, use of uh, Gaelic at the end of the Rats in the Walls. Which brings us to Robert E. Howard, and mm. the part that I'm kind of the most excited about. Born January 22, 1906, he died June 11th, 1936. He died at the age of 30. He did not live long. If you look at his picture on Wikipedia, he looks like a gangster. Um, I really like Robert E. Howard, although I don't know if I would have liked him in person. Robert E. Howard was raised in the Texas oil fields, and it heavily affected every single part of his life. Like uh, Lovecraft, he was extremely close with his mother and also suffered from a lot of fears and cynicism. Uh, In Howard's case, specifically, he was really terrified of growing old, which will come up, but we'll save that for the very end. Howard is interesting. I mean, he wrote sword and sorcery, westerns, boxing, everything. Horror. Lots of horror. Uh, While Lovecraft is now recognized as one of the greatest writers of the era, Howard is still not thought of as a particularly great writer, but But he's proved he's got the fucking staying power. 
And it actually sort of drives me nuts. One of the reviewers talking about it is Stephen King, who talks about how terrible he thinks Love or not Lovecraft uh, Howard is when being a fan of Lovecraft. But then also then goes on to say Howard wrote one of the greatest horror short stories of the 20th century. And, and then he's like, I also just don't like Sword and Sorcery. I'm like, well, why the fuck are you reviewing Howard then? <laughs> like, he does horror, but in a lot through the Sword and Sorcery vein. Uh, the reason for this being that Howard loved writing historical fiction. But the amount of research required for historical fiction made it so it took too long to write the story to make the money. Because he was... You can tell in some of his writing, he's detail-oriented perfectionist at times. Uh, so he came up with the idea of something that, that follows the route of his stories of the rise and collapse of civilization. The before the written word that we have, before our recorded history, there had been a cataclysm. And before that, there had been a giant, like, great world uh, fantasy, but basically like the era. And then this this happens cyclically. So one day our civilization will fall and we'll lose all recording and mankind will come back out of that to new heights. Uh, so his Cull stories, his Conan the Barbarian stories, his Bran MacMorn, his um, Solomon Kane all take place in the same universe, but in between these cataclysms for the most part. And this was shaped, the reason, main reason I'm mentioning it beyond the fact that it's just cool is that it was shaped by his upbringing in the Texas oil fields because he was watching the boom and bust happen oh, constantly. Mm -hmm. um, it does bring in Howard's racism. I have been known in the past to be like, Howard tried. Later in life, Howard kind of tried. He also wrote a story called The Last White Man when he was a teen and talked about how like the greatest mankind ever reaches is... Uh, the white or the blonde, blue-eyed bar barbarian. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, I might have just said, oh, woe is HPL for like five minutes, but don't mistake me like trying to excuse his racism. This no. is a dude that wrote a poem called On the Creation of N-Words. Yep. Um, I will say, as I said, Howard's views did seem to change as he grew up. He was raised in what I'm certain is a remarkably racist time and history and area of the world of, you know, the oil fields in the first part of the 20th century. And as I said, he does get better later on and he is a noted feminist for the era. He put hmm. several powerful female characters, most notably Belit, who does not feel super powerful feminist in major aspects of the story anymore. She's a pirate queen that Conan falls in love with, but for the age, she would have been, I mean, she was a pirate queen. That was remarkably, just even having that was remarkably feminist. Uh, I do want to real quickly, even though it doesn't come up in this story, talk about the Picts. P-I-C-T-S. It is a race that Howard came up with that overwhelmingly defined a lot of his writing. Because it was the, like, one follow through in every single one of his stories, pretty much. Uh, the Picts is a term, for, a real term for a real life, uh, ancient British, Irish, Scottish, you know, that area of the world culture, pre-Celt, pre-Gallic. His version is absolute horseshit, but follow the thread throughout the entire history of a, he called them, uh, Aborigine species. Okay. 
the talk about his racism here to explain some of the stuff that I'm going to say here. He had some really flawed opinions of evolution, which is, I think, where a lot of the racism came from. Mm. Of he thought that if you evolved, you became like the next link up the chain. Also that you could de-evolve. Like he's got mankind rising and then literally devolving back into apes and then rising again. So the idea, and I know Lovecraft did this too, that like, okay, Africans, and then we went to Europe and there were some evolutionary changes in Europe. And instead of just being to adapt to the environment, he, they thought that like, oh, they're a step above evolution wise. Right. It is horrifically racist and wrong. But it it is a kind of a theme in their writing, so it, it has to be mentioned. But he was obsessed with his version of the Picts, which were dark-skinned Britons, which is a real thing. It pissed white supremacists off today that it turns out that you used to be black if you lived in Britain, if you go far enough back. But these people, like, you, when you first see them is in the Cole stories, where they're a barbarian tribe, but, you know, because they're not from Volusia, the main, mm-hmm. like, area, but not lesser. They are like, you know, one of the most powerful characters in his story is a Pict. Okay. You later, they appear in the Conan stories where they have become much more tribal, less civilized people. And then you see them in the Bran MacMorn stories where they are like the last remnants of the Picts taking on Romans. And then you later find a Bran cult like that worships Bran MacMorn, the last king of the Picts in some of his later writing. So it's kind of a follow through through all of his stuff, uh, which I think is interesting that the racist white guy would choose like his follow through be this tribe of dark skinned people who he clearly likes better than anyone else. He's not a big believer, Howard, in civilization Mm. because he thinks that the and this is where we can kind of talk about Conan, that the barbarian has to be more honest and true. Because you will be killed otherwise. Like, Conan doesn't lie and bullshit and treat people bad much because where he was raised, if you do that, you're going to fight to the death. Right. And Howard's like, I'm not saying that's better, but in some ways it's more ethical. Because, like, in some ways it's more honest. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Actually, like, I saved one of the, that quotes from the story we fucking read. It has something almost exactly. Oh, so good. Uh, the, the story we read is the tower of the elephant. Although I almost went with worms, the earth, a Bran MacMorn story because it's one of his best pieces of writing and it does directly connect to Cthulhu. But this one is considered the, one of the best Conan stories and Conan is easily considered his best character. Okay. So that what you were just talking about directly from this story, civilized men are more discourteous than savages because they know they can be impolite without having their skulls split as a general thing. And then Conan splits that dude's fucking skull open like he was right. (laughs) Um, So the Conan stories are interesting. The first Conan story was a rewrite of Cull. Also, fun thing about Howard is he wouldn't just go be like, oh, I'm going to write a love, not a love, uh, a Solomon Kane story this time. And the next one will be Conan. He wrote a character while that character was interesting to him and then was done and never really went back. Mm. And he didn't worry about any type of timeline. Like it wasn't, you know, this story happens and this story happens. Chronology suck it. Uh, And he describes Conan because the first Conan story is a rework of Cole. And it's later on in Conan's life when Conan has become king. Oh, King Uh, Phoenix, Phoenix on the sword. But most stories take place before he becomes king of Aquilonia. 
And he described it as he thought of it as like could almost hear Conan sitting in a tavern with him, telling him great tales of his adventures, being like, did I tell you about the time that I met the Frost Giant's daughter or that I broke into the Elephant's Tower? And then, you know, would tell out the story and he'd write it down and come out with it, uh, which is a storytelling device that I absolutely adore. And I've always wanted to do stories mm-hmm. in that setting, in that world. I think it would drive modern readers absolutely nuts, but that would almost make it better for me. So we have seen Conan as a king several times. This is one of the first stories where we don't. And he is a young thief in Zamora, the city of thieves. This isn't a king. This isn't a slightly philosophical barbarian. This is a pissed off teenager. He's literally showing up being like, I've heard of this thing. How hard is it to steal? Okay, I'm going to try. Uh, these, you, it is immediately different from Lovecraft because from the very beginning, he is painting a word picture. He is building the world. You feel, get the feel of what Zamora and what this shitty ass tavern that he's in feels like in a way that Lovecraft never would have bothered with. Right. To be fair, though, this is sword and sorcery rather than yes. cosmic horror. And right? I love sword and sorcery yeah. more than I love cosmic horror. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. I am saying that. Right. It, 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 but they're both pulp. Yes, they're both pulp. They both, I chose this one because it connects kind of the Lovecraft of like life beyond this earth, mm-hmm. but from such a different angle. Someone, this, this prince, this, not prince, this thief is talking about this impossible item to steal the, the heart of the elephant, which is a jewel. And Conan's like, well, why don't you steal it? And this thief tries to be like condescending to Conan because he's obviously a barbarian from the middle of fucking nowhere. Uh, he's wearing his shirt in the beginning of this, but it doesn't take long for it to disappear. And he's uh, fucking... Guess I'm just, in a loincloth now. Yep. Fuck off. <laughs> loincloth and sandals. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, and the the thief makes fun of him being like, oh, what would you do then? And he's like, well, I climb the fucking wall, of course. And they try to make fun of him. And he's like, fuck you, man. Uh, insults him right back. The thief tries to kill him. Conan's like, okay, fine, murders the thief, wanders off, and is still so pissed off at being laughed at that he decides he's going to break into the Tower of the Elephant and steal the heart of the elephant. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting because he never outright says as much, but you get a little bit of the fact that, like, you get a little bit of the point that Conan was kind of pissed off at them, not because necessarily they were laughing, but because they were laughing and then wouldn't tell him why he was wrong. Yeah, that's part of it, too. Uh, mostly he was mad at being disrespected. Yeah. But you also, like, I, I felt like if they would have at least been like, well, this is why, he would have been like, okay, well, that's something I didn't know. Now let me take that under con- into consideration. But they were just laughing and being like, no, you're just being dumb about this. Um, There's a, a sentence that said at the beginning of a couple of the Conan stories of know ye king before the king, blah, 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 blah. But it dis- hither came Conan, the Chimerian, uh, a man of gigantic mirths and great melancholies. I'm fucking torching one of the most beautiful, like, intro <laughs> summaries of a character ever written. It's like three paragraphs long, perfectly describes everything you need to know to know the world of Conan the Barbarian. But that that line, uh, a man of great mirth and great and gigantic melancholies or something like that is sums up Conan. Well, if you make him laugh, he'll laugh fucking hard and he'll let you make fun of him. But if you piss him off, 
he'll get broody and murder you. It's literally the first like couple lines of the very first Conan story, Phoenix on the Sword. Mm. Uh, and they later used this of the idea of someone was reading these stories to this prince. No, O prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world like blue mantles beneath the stars. Nemedia, Ophir, Brethunia, Hyperborea, Zamora, with its dark-haired women and towers of spider-haunted mystery. Uh, that's where we are including Spider-Haunted Mystery, Zingara with its chivalry, Koth that bordered on the pastoral lands of Shem, Stygia with its shadow-guarded tombs, Hyrcania whose riders wore steel and silk and gold, but the proudest kingdom of the reigning world was Aquilonia, reigning supreme in the dreaming west. Hither came Conan, the Camarian, black-haired, sullen-eyed, sword in hand, a thief, a reaver, a slayer, with gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth, to tread the er jeweled thrones of the earth underneath his sandaled feet. From the Nemedian Chronicles. Like, you read that, you need, you have read everything you need to know to, to enter the world of Conan and figure your shit out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a brilliant piece of writing right there. And it was written... I like I don't know if he already had an idea for the Tower of the Elephant, but like Zamora, the city of thieves and the spider haunted mystery, he fights a giant fucking spider in this. Um, yeah, he does. I wasn't expecting it to be a spider. No, no one was expecting, but it, it felt very like it made me think of a uh, Skyrim. Oh, where yeah. you're going through yeah. that first tomb and a fucking giant spider drops out of nowhere. Like, I'm not saying Conan was the first to do that, but would have been a very defining point of that happening. What's interesting is Howard is probably the the only comparable author for how important he is to what fantasy is today is J.R. Tolkien. And my favorite part of that is Tolkien would have been fucking livid. <laughs> livid to be described to the sensationalist or compared to the sensationalist American uneducated hack. That's really fucking funny. I can see that, though. And I get it. I mean, and, but... No one else really was writing fiction with such a fully realized world. Right. But in completely different ways where Tolkien wanted to talk about like these great battles of history and these great people living out there like King Arthur fantasy. Well, and even then he more just wanted a world for his languages to live. Yes. Howard just wanted to write real world fantasy without having to worry about accuracy. Like the, uh, the Camarians are the Scots, like the Scottish Highlanders, basically mm. the, like Stygia is very much Egypt. There is pretty much like, Oh, this is these people, but not, I mean, they, he straight up steals Stygia, Camaria, Cush, like all, all right. of these were yeah. real nations. And actually, Lovecraft was like, you lazy son of a bitch. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do that. And he's like, no, fuck you. This is perfect. Um, Nobody cares. <laughs> the, the story of Conan, again, what's interesting about these is a lot of times not that much happens. This is one night in the story of Conan where he meets the Prince of Thieves. They decide to rob a tower together and he doesn't fuck up while the prince does. Right. But he also... 
only does like the last 25% of the work too. Whereas yes. the prince is the one that does the first 75% of even getting them in there. Uh, <laughs> and you know, they like fight tigers or no lions. Lions. They kill a bunch of people. They're hiding from the sorcerer. Uh, but the difference is the Prince of Thieves. I don't remember the guy's name. Also a big fat man that was like super stealthy and like good at climbing was amazing because <laughs> you don't see that. Right. Um, this, Conan this, is constantly impressed that this fat like, dude is doing all this shit. Uh, the the Prince of Thieves is unmatched when it comes to like the the problems of civilization that he has to get through. But the moment that you leave civilization and uh, enter kind of the dark horrors of the world, it's where Conan fucking takes off. Got to fight a giant spider? Let's do this. A lion popped up out of nowhere? I'm on top of it. Creepy elephant man alien thing going? Let's blow up this tower together. Right. Yeah, I wasn't expecting how weird it got at the end. Uh, he it, he did write weird fiction. Like right. His, it is sword and sorcery with a mix of weird fiction, but he doesn't get credit enough, I think, for his weird shit. It turns out that the tower of this, spoilers for a book written almost a century ago, was run by a sorcerer, the high priest, I don't remember the priest's name, oh, comes I up. It's not super important, either. though. Uh, who had, Yarrow. Yeah. Who had stolen the heart of this elephant man alien thing. Yara. Yara. Who, do you remember the name of the elephant dude? Uh, it was like Yon Saga something. Yag Kasha. I really like Yag Kasha. I just thought it was really cool. And also, Dark Horse did a comic book adaptation of this that is just gorgeous. Yag Kasha was, was part of this race of aliens that were traveling in a kind of uh, Lovecrafty way, although they weren't as malevolent as Lovecraft's aliens always tend to be. Um, yeah, it's half and half that they're malevolent, and sometimes it's just that were too insignificant for them to notice mm -hmm. while they do their shit. These ones crash on Earth and just kind of watch civilization fall. There are several references to the Cole stories with Atlantis and Volusia. Uh, Cole was an Atlantean who became king of Volusia in the same way that Conan was a Cimmerian that became king of Aquilonia. Um, as I said, Conan, the first Conan story was a rewrite of a rejected Cole story. Mm -hmm. And it works better for Conan, so that's fine. This, this alien elephant man thing was living for years, was finally kidnapped uh, and had his power stolen by an evil sorcerer. And although he is dying, he uh, sets Conan to fucking fuck over the sorcerer guy and let himself escape. And I don't want to go too much into it because it's really cool. And it sounds dumb when you try and explain it out loud. <laughs> well, that, it's kind of funny because even at the end of the story, even Conan's kind of like, did all that shit just happen? Because there's don't know no what's going evidence on here. Yeah. of anything at the end of it. Conan breaks into the unbreakable place and does things that no one's been able to manage for centuries because this Yara priest guy has been a tyrant for centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, and then leaves empty handed and just leaves at the end of it. Just is done. Let's go. And the only thing that's changed is now there's no tower. Yeah. Because he left as it was like collapsing cool guys walk away from explosion style. And he can't even prove he was in it. Didn't even get a single jewel. And that's not uncommon for Conan, actually. That he would go through some weird and crazy thing. And at the end of the day, only he survived. So there's not really any like right. proof that it happened. Uh, I think if he was written today, 
there would be people doubting Conan's stories written into the story, but Conan would be like, all right, let's fucking go. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll kill you. <laughs> like, I guess we're going to do this then. Conan's not necessarily... Uh, another reason why I like this story is Conan's not necessarily a good guy. He'll kill you. He'll steal. Whatever. Just He's to, just not necessarily a shit guy either. Yeah. Uh, it, it, in a weird way, he's a good person. But a good person who was raised with the idea of a slightly different moral set where, you know what, if you need to kill a guy, then that's what you do. Uh, Blue-orange uh, morality. Yeah. <laughs> um, Murder is okay if someone's rude to you. I really liked this story. It's so good. Partially just because I kind of got to, compared to the other stories, mm -hmm. I got to turn my brain off a little bit more. Yes. It is. You, but not you, you're giving way. me this look of like, I promise but I'm not being mean, but like, way. no. Uh, <laughs> it's candy. Yeah. It's well written. It's interesting. But it is. He doesn't have some deeper message that he is trying to send in this story. There are other stories he writes where that happens more. Uh, a Cole story about mirrors is much more interesting in that way. But this was just him trying to write a good adventure story. I did imagine Momoa Conan the entire time. You mentioned what? I did imagine oh, in Momoa? my head Momoa yes. Conan the entire time. Um. And that's why I don't want Arnold, because Conan is much smarter than Arnold's Conan was allowed to be. Yeah. Conan's not dumb, but he's treated as, like... Momoa also is physically closer to the way he's described. Yes, he is often described as a panther. and But a uh, big panther. Uh, I mean, a big panther, yes, fine. <laughs> but... Uh, but not a boulder like fucking yeah, he's, Arnie. He's sleek and quiet and nothing about Conan, uh, Arnie's Conan is quiet. Arnie's Conan is the one that takes drugs and punches out a camel, which is admittedly my favorite part of that movie by far, but not because I feel like it's a super Conan thing to do. Arnie's Conan is kind of the like public perception of Conan as like kind of a big dumb barbarian. Mm hmm. While he Which, is a big, uneducated barbarian, I think is... Yeah, I agree. Um, I do, like, I have fun with Arnie's Conan. I had fun I watching it. But I acknowledge it as Arnie's Conan and not as Conan. Yes, I think it's a good sword and sorcery flick. I think it's a bad Conan flick. Right. And I think that's what drives me nuts when everyone's like, oh, then obviously it should be Arnie. And I'm like, it should... No! <laughs> like, it should be Momoa! Momoa with a script. Also, that movie wasn't that great, but I will say that the pacing of it felt more like a pulp. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it was... The biggest problem with the Momoa film is apparently rewrites were happening on set that day. And, like, there are stories where that's happened, but that's almost never a good thing. That is... The script was changing so much while they were recording it that it was almost impossible for them to get a really cohesive story and the biggest uh the biggest problem with that is there was no cohesive anything tying it together it was just let's throw him from scene to scene to scene with no real logic in between mm -hmm. also they could which still feels kind of pulpy it but. is <laughs> uh but they also like it felt like some of the bad conan stories the conan stories were robert e howard was like well i gotta pay the bills right let's pop out a new conan book and i I have very specific ones of those. And I'm like, that's the ones he didn't care that day. I'm only getting half a cent a page anyway. 
Yeah, fuck, that is terrible. Oof. The difference is Howard was able to make his living off of, partly because he was an insanely prolific writer, as opposed to Howard, who would, as you mentioned, just be like, it got rejected once. I'm, and they're like, it's almost there. It just needs this. And he's like, nope, it's bad. No, there was actually, for the two of them, there was a weird, uh, they, they ended up with the opposite thing when they died. Howard was insanely prolific, but all of his stuff got published for the most part during his lifetime. When he died, there was not much that was left. Mm-hmm. Couple writings, personal letters between like him and Lovecraft and stuff, but of actual stories, it, they had pretty much all been put out. Lovecraft had already submitted so many stories that Weird Tales had just held on to that they actually published more of his after he died than while he was alive. Jesus. Um, it's interesting. Howard, I mean, he was very popular when he was alive, but no one thought he had any literary value until, again, as I said, Elsbrogg de Kamp, who wrote more Conan stories that are unevenly decided as canon. You know what? Actually, let's talk about let's do a little quick thing on Howard's death and then we'll talk about kind of post-life because Lovecraft and Howard both their post-life is kind of interesting, even if I don't know a ton about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Howard, as we had mentioned, was very close with his mother. His mother went into a coma and he got a call saying that his mom was never going to wake up again. And he goes out to his car and he shoots himself. And that death affected Lovecraft, as I said, very strongly, affected Smith very strongly, and kind of changed the course of Pulp. And it's tragic. I think it was just a year later that Lovecraft passed from the cancer, uh, which wasn't helped by the fact that he also had a fear of doctors. Yeah. So by the time he finally went, it was way too late. Uh, Um, But even after Howard had died... Uh, Lovecraft actually got in t- contact and con- consoled uh, Howard's father. Yeah. they, As I said, these guys were very close, and it marks a major change in uh, Ashton Smith's life when these two both dies. It's kind of when he starts moving out of the fiction mm-hmm. era of his storytelling. Uh, I mean, this is also right around when the 40s are. The 40s is kind of the death knell of pulp as we know it. Uh, but when it's over, people start to notice Lovecraft and they're like, oh, Howard's got no literary merit except for, again, Elsbrock de Camp, who wrote more Conan stories. They're not very good, but that's OK. Ruthlessly edited Howard's writing, saying like, oh, he, he was great, but like he was a bad writer. I'll make him a better writer and just wrecked. I, I've read some de Camp edits. Mm. Uh, the mood is just shot right to hell. But it put Howard and Conan's name on the map enough that other people were later able to really hook into it. And so this is also where I want to throw in, uh, so I don't have to do it in a later episode, a correction to myself. Uh, Lovecraft definitely visited uh, Barlow at least twice down in Florida. Mm. I, I looked it up. And Barlow did inherit some things, but it's really unclear what because of the way that Lovecraft's career continued. Which I think is why I'm so confused when I was trying to explain this bit to you. Yeah, because even I don't know what he actually would have inherited at this point, other than maybe some of the personal letters. Because Weird Tales already, like Um, I said, had already was holding on to some of Lovecraft's stuff that they published after his death. And the big thing that got 
that kept Lovecraft alive is uh, another one of the members of his literary circle and author that submitted to Weird Tales, August Derleth, um, actually founded Arkham House Publishing in order to keep Lovecraft alive, uh, put out, I think, the first four collections of Lovecraft stories, as well as one of the first collections of Clark Ashton Smith stories. Mm. Good and guy, Durleth. The, a weird, the thing about Durleth, he's actually hugely influential on um, Lovecraft's legacy because Durleth is why we know it as a Cthulhu mythos. Mm-hmm. He's the one that really kind of officially organized lots of it. Um, Controversially. Even, yeah, but. even during Lovecraft's life, I think he had some stories set in the mythos, which he was, you know, he knew Lovecraft. Like, mm-hmm. he was another one of the pen pals. Like, he was one of the guys he was cool with doing that. But especially post-death, he's the one that sort of formalized it. Like, when you look up and try to get super deep on some of the characters, like Cthulhu, you'll notice he's mentioned as being kind of like a priest of the old gods. And that's a little bit more Durlethy. And then the other thing is that he put out a bunch of stories that were supposedly collabor- posthumous collaborations with Lovecraft based on his notes, but nobody's sure how much notes were actually used and how much it was just Durleth. Durleth being like, I have ideas. He did put a much more good evil spin on the mythos, as I understand yes. it, as opposed to Lovecraft, who had no interest in that. No. Good evil didn't apply. They just fucked you up and you went mad. Yeah, I think I think Durleth was actually like a professed Christian as well, whereas Lovecraft was professed atheist. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know how much that actually had an effect. I, uh, like, like I said, Durnless, the reason it's lived on, I can't bring myself to read any of the Durnless mythos stories. Yeah, that happens a lot when, like, something leaves its original creator and you're like, oh, no, oh. Uh, as I said, DeCamp does the same thing. What's interesting is I think the biggest thing that keeps Conan going and kind of helped bring a lot of pulp into the modern day is Marvel Comics Mm -hmm. because they were trying to adapt a different story because adaptations of novels used to be pretty big, but they wanted whoever they were trying to publish. They wanted too much money, but they were able to get the Conan stories for just dirt cheap. So cheap that Roy Thomas, who was writing them, felt bad for how little they were paying some of the artists and was helping pay, like supplement their pay out of his own pocket and just hoping the artists never found out. Mm. Um, because Roy Thomas, who also brought Star Wars to Marvel and helped make that, which helped make Star Wars as big as it was, brought Conan to Marvel and it helped make Conan the thing he is today because the Conan comics sold like fucking hotcakes. Because it's perfect for... They're so good. Uh, and Sword and Sorcery translates to fucking comics so well. And amazing, absolutely amazing artists and writers working these stories. And some of them feel really primitive. And some of the adaptations I don't like as much. I like the more modern ones a little mm-hmm. better. But they're so good. D&D exists because of Tolkien. And honestly, probably those Conan stories starting in the 70s more than the... Conan short stories themselves. Uh, Conan has definitely taken a much bigger life post Howard than he ever had during Howard, where he was already pretty popular. What's interesting is I don't tend to like 
original Conan stories not written by Howard nearly as much. Mm. Like adapting Howard's tales and maybe filling in some flavor in between tends to work much better than like completely new Conan story sagas. Although Jason Aaron's Conan story was that came out just recently was fucking sick. So talking out of my ass. I was about to ask if Jason Aaron ever did any Conan. Because after reading Jason Aaron's Thor. Yeah, I was Marvel like... thought the same goddamn thing. Uh, Marvel had the Conan license up until the 90s where it was at that point selling garbage. And especially when they uh, announced bankruptcy, they just let it lapse. It just wasn't worth keeping that thing they had to pay for when they have all these other IPs that were selling better anyways. Mm -hmm. Because the 90s Conan stories were bad. They were bad. Uh, Conan was not a character that translated well into the... uh, Big muscles and pouches era of comic books. Ooh, yeah, no. Dark Horse picked up the property at that point and put out some of, I mean, the work I have, the stuff that I picked up is a Marvel reprint of the Dark Horse era of comics. Some of the best comic creators ever were working on this. Kurt Busiek wrote it. Uh, Carrie Nord, who relaunched uh, Exo Manowar, which we have talked about, was the artist for this originally. Uh, Timothy Truman, who was one of the, and I think John Ostrander did work too, who were the creators of Grimjack, did Conan runs during this era. Okay. Uh, But like a lot of things, it started to lose the big name authors, although they were still putting out good work. Marvel, who's been putting a lot of effort into regaining IPs lately, put out big name authors or put, uh, bought it up and put out big name authors of... Uh, the creative team of Thor of when Thor first launched. So uh, Jason Aaron and that Asad Ribic was doing the covers, not the main art, but the covers. It is really good. Aaron has a excellent sense of tone for, for Conan. And then Jim Zub is taking over and Jim Zub actually was doing work for Conan with dark horse being like, I'll never get a chance to do this again. And then Dark Horse lost the license right when he was starting to like become a real name at Marvel. And now he gets the Conan license again. He's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> I not only got to write the like Red Sonia Conan crossover with Gail Simone, now I get to write him working with the Avengers? This is perfect. That story shouldn't have worked, and it worked very well. Good to know. Immortal Hulk was also part of it. It's a wild fucking story. All right. Um, yeah, that's like coming away from reading all three of these. Like I, like you said, Conan's candy. I just kind of want some candy right uh-huh. now. Like this isn't inspiring me to jump. Well, I do want to read more Clark Ashton Smith, but that's more just because I want to know more what he's all about. But but it's not making me like I should dive back into Lovecraft. My life is stressful enough as it is right now. But like, yeah, I've read all of that. <laughs> Uh, I almost feel like I should apologize. This episode is really scattered, but it's hard to talk about these characters because as we said, in most of these stories, not much happens, but it sounds really cool while it doesn't happen. They're also like a century old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have anything new to say about these. There was one neat thing that I wanted to point out about Lovecraft just because we're getting to talk about him this episode. Please. And that he did uh, ghostwrite a story for Harry Houdini. Oh, yeah, they were buddies. That published in in uh, Weird Tales. So weird. Uh, Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which is actually a good story. Um, it was originally published 
uh, credited only to Houdini. Yeah, ghostwritten. <laughs> right. Well, it was even it was a weird situation though, where because I, I think that they were going to give Lovecraft like editing credit or something. Oh, okay. I don't know. Which is some bullshit because yeah. Um, but it, then it was, you know, corrected later. You can definitely tell in all of the stories how big Egyptology was in, like, the 30s in America, mm-hmm. which it was huge. We were obsessed with what we were finding out of Egypt and stealing a lot of it, but that's a different thing. Uh, and bits of Egypt shine through in each one of these stories a little bit. Uh, but yeah, they actually had a big venture planned that might have actually gotten Lovecraft a little bit more famous in his lifetime, except then Houdini died. Man, he couldn't catch a break. Right. <laughs> What's weird is for such an unpleasant person, people liked him. Like, they're like, you're not a pleasant person. But... But, like, I want you to, like, even his wife, they divorce, but they divorced amicably. Yeah, they were because they hadn't been living together for a couple of years because she traveled to work and he was not good at life. So he just kind of hung out and she sent him money back mm-hmm. whenever really she could. And otherwise, he would sometimes uh, like not eat for almost a week because it was more important for him to afford postage uh, for all the letters he was writing. People. Yeah, he was a weird dude. Anyway. It's hard to talk about these guys without getting a little bit depressed, too, considering the ends and Everything is they... sad in what we're talking about in this episode. Even the beautiful moments were sad. But I do enjoy what they wrote so much. I recommend all three of them really highly. And I didn't say that about Lovecraft before this week, so I appreciate that. Yeah. Yay. I hope you check out a couple of the others. We'll see. I mean, maybe I, not right away. I picked up the complete Lovecraft audiobook, so I think right. I'll just, like... Every once in a while, re-download it onto Audible and be like, let's try out this one. Yeah. Um, uh, like I said, I Shadow of Rainsmith. I'd go for that. Or Color Out of Space. I think you did Color Out of Space. So. I mean, I'll get to all of them eventually. Uh, should we just get on to recommendations? Let's then? get on to recommendations. You go first, because i got to look up how to pronounce a name. All right. Uh, my recommendation to tie into everything that we've been talking about is... The 2009 James Purefoy movie, Solomon Kane. We both are going with Howard. That's good. Uh, I've never seen this, but I, every time I think of Solomon Kane, I think of how I actually want to see this. It, it was... It's fun. Like, I like it. I really like James Purefoy. He was the Black Prince in um, A Knight's Tale. Oh, yeah. He's good. And... Like he plays Solomon Kane, it's like I I feel like it works. Like it feels Solomon Kane-y enough. Uh, the problem is that people didn't really get too much of a chance to figure out whether they liked it or not because the release over here in the states was super fucked up. Like due to distribution rights and stuff, I think it got a limited theatrical run when it was first put out, and I'm not positive that that theatrical run actually happened in the states. But then it wasn't able to be released on uh, home media until 2013. Oh, geez, yeah. I do remember hearing about it coming out and then just not ever hearing a goddamn thing about it. Uh, so I just remember, like, being pissed because I during that time period, I couldn't afford, like, a Region 2 blue, like, Blu-ray player to just buy, like, an overseas version. 
So I had to wait till 2013 to watch it. Uh, I suppose I could have, I pirated enough stuff. I probably could have done that, but I don't know why I waited. I don't know why I waited, but I truly did wait on that one and actually watched it like legitly in a way that I paid for. So I really liked it. That's, that's as much as I, it's, I I will admit it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. So I'm not speaking. I'm not going in expecting great things. I'm going in to feel for moody atmosphere. Right. Um, I'm going to recommend two Robert E. Howard short stories, neither one of which is Conan the Barbarian, because people forget that he writes non-Conan stuff, or non-Solomon Kane stuff. Uh, they're both technically Bran MacMorn stories. The first one is Worms of the Earth, which we talked about doing for this, because it directly ties the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, Bran MacMorn, the last king of the Picts, decides to take vengeance on a Roman governor and makes deals with things that he should not that might be the snake men from earlier call stories although they could the, there's definite references to the cthulhu mythos so they could be a howard not mm. a howard a lovecraft thing mm-hmm. uh and the murder happens but not in a way that leaves uh bran macmorn feeling good about himself or the world which is a pretty common theme in that kind of like sword and sorcery revenge. Like make a deal with a dark devil. And at the end you're like, Whoa, Oh, he was a piece of shit, but he did not deserve that. <laughs> um, it is, it was described as an uncommonly good tale hmm. by the editor who bought it, but it is one of Howard's best pieces of writing. And then I'm going to go with the other one, which might be my favorite piece of Howard writing called the Kings of the night. And it's basically an early crossover story that would later become like a bit, you know, Captain America meets Spider-Man, like Conan, Spider-Man, even I'm just using Spider-Man nonstop mm-hmm. here, but, uh, cause it was a big crossover story between a lot of his characters. Cause it is ostensibly about Bran MacMorn, the last King of the Picts again. Uh, but it also, he meets a Gaelic hero that, uh, Howard wrote a couple names, or stories about, but I don't know how to pronounce his name and I don't even remember it off the top of my head because I've never read anything else of his other than this specific story. Gotcha. And thanks to, they need to win this battle, but like shit's going down and they need a, a king that can like lead this group of people. Cull is brought forward from a hundred thousand years in the past to help the descendant of his right-hand man, Brule the Spear Slayer, who is Bran MacMorn's great, 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 great ancestor and the entire story is like Bran MacMorn desperately needs to win this battle to build a nation to keep off the Romans from just doing what the Romans do but Cole thinks he's having a weird fucking dream mm. so he's popping up and like the other guy from the other the, the the Gaelic guy is like is this a trick did they just find an insane guy to lead this what's going how does he have this amazing sword that's way more advanced than anything we can make and Bran MacMorn's like, please help us call. And Cole's <laughs> like, this is the coolest dream ever. Let's do this. <laughs> like, like, oh, you need to uh, lead these Vikings who will fucking betray us if we don't give them a king. And Cole's like, yeah, okay. I'm like, all right, you need to fight this one to the death to lead the Vikings. And he's like, all right, this is even better. Um, like, do you want this shield? And he's like, nah, dude, I got this. Yeah, don't worry about Here's it. Here's my knife. I'm Cole. Let's do this. Uh, it's some of the more joyful you ever get to see Call because Call is usually 
Cole's best stories are when he's a king. Most of his mm-hmm. stories are when he's a king. But as much more kind of the philosopher barbarian as opposed to Conan, who's the adventurer barbarian, who sometimes philosophizes. But getting to see Cole be like, this is a dream, so I don't have to care. Let's fully let my barbarian side loose is fun in a way that it is definitely not the deepest story I've ever read. But it's fucking good. Uh, I realized that with my recommendation, I should have ex- probably explained that Solomon Kane is a rather taciturn, puritanical witch hunter. Yes. Like, in reality, the witch hunters were not a good thing for literally anybody, including the witch hunters. But there is something about that idea that has legs, which is why they still use it in 40K and why Solomon Kane was made like 10 years ago. Right. And, I mean, honestly, like, the Solomon Kane model can even be seen in, like, Vampire Hunter D. Yes. Uh, the big hat that he has and the cloak. I mean, yeah, I, I've never put it together until you said that, but yeah. Yeah, he's just... Vampire Hunter D is, what if Solomon Kane lived in cyberpunk and was also the son of Dracula? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much exactly. So oh my God. that's that's why you should watch Solomon Kane, because that's the type of character you're getting. There we go. Yeah. That's my recommendation now. <laughs> I just realized that the first time around, all I did was say his name like 10 times. Solomon Kane. Solomon Kane. Solomon Kane. Next week, you should come see us because we're going to deal into what is also kind of a descendant of pulp in our uh, future of spooky or our kind of like half year of spooky that we have planned out here. Well, here, here's the way I'm going to say it. Do you think that we were sad this episode? Let's be real Real fucking sad. Let's get super emo next episode. It's time to talk about The Crow. Well, yeah. no, next week it's time to talk about The Crow. My voice is tired. That's next week. Yeah, yeah, we're not talking about <laughs> it now. I could talk about it now. I'd rather do my research to Nine. get it nice and fresh in my head again. Uh, which means I'm also going to be listening to that movie soundtrack all week because it is a baller soundtrack. Oh, Grab City of Angels too. Ooh, yeah. Soundtrack, not the movie, not the movie. No, 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 but the soundtrack. Uh, okay. With that in mind, in order to listen to that next week, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review however you're listening to us right now, that'd be super cool because the whole internet's ran on algorithms and we'd like to have people listen to us even when we ramble and don't know what we're talking about this when it comes to Clark Ashton Smith. Uh, it was still fun. You guys enjoyed it. If you're if you're still listening, <laughs> if you're still listening now, you enjoyed it. So also, if you could just put the word out by mouth, that'd be super cool too. Yeah. Um, to go along with that, you can always head over to our website www.generalnerdcast.com. You can contact contact us through there or by emailing us uh, generalnerdrepod at gmail.com. While you're over at the website, uh, check out our entire back catalog and also click the links up at the top. We are part of the Earvern Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows over on the network. Listen to me talk about horror movies over on Fried Squirm Zach. You can listen to me talk about war and war gaming and war treatises over on the Art of War Gaming. And just a couple days ago, we recorded more on Word Balloons, so that should be coming soon. The final sooner. season is recorded, it is just getting edited. So keep a lookout for that. And the easiest way to do that will be to check out earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. Check out everything coming forward from the network. Find us general nerdery across all the social medias. We, we would love to. Them. Yeah, we sometimes do things. We would love to interact with you. Maybe I'll take a picture with like my Cthulhu on my shoulder. We'll see what happens. Um, 
Am I missing anything? Is that all I have I to say? I think that's it. I think it's time for us to take off. Okay, let's it's do that. Time. Yeah, dinner time. All right. In the meantime, we're your generals of nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed. Dismissed.